0: Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the Associate Dean for Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Joining me again today are James Fennessy and Dr. Adrian Calamel, a professor of history at Finger Lakes Community College. This is our third episode in a miniseries within a series on the Arab Spring. In our last episode, we discussed how the Arab Spring played out in Tunisia and Egypt. Today, we are moving on to Yemen and Libya. Still to come in this series is an episode on Syria, and another where we will try to wrap all of this up and draw some general conclusions about the Arab Spring and its importance. Adrian, thanks for coming back and joining us again today today. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a recap on what we talked about last time, and especially on the themes that you talked about last time that are going to be important today when we start talking about uh, the experiences in Yemen and Libya?
1: Sure, Rob. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be back. So, the last uh, podcast, we looked at Tunisia. And uh, Egypt. And it made sense to look at those two because there were certain things. Well, it's where they started chronologically speaking in Tunisia and then quickly sweep into Egypt. There are a lot of similarities. You see them passed down through the, some of the long standing structural flaws um, and long standing factors that uh, the civilized, that, that those societies and states had. Um, the people that lived under, and then there are also some of the immediate factors. So you see with Egypt and Tunisia, a lot of these are right out in front. Now, when we get down to Yemen and Libya and start talking about them, uh, with Yemen, we'll see that a lot of the same factors that affected Egypt and Tunisia, such as um, population explosion, unemployment, corruption, and autocratic regime, but you're going to have that in Libya as well the education uh, availability of jobs and then we're also going to see with yemen we're going to see the demonstration effect um, people rise up in the streets well the small demonstrations coming out after um, you have the fall of ben ali in tunisia and then the fall of mubarak in egypt that brings people out into the streets they're not large demonstrations but they're gathering in size and momentum uh, so we see that we're going to look at the armed services position you know, how did they respond to these, these uprisings? And what we're going to see is a kind of a different picture being painted here. And that will lead us into the like long term. What's it kind of looking like today in Yemen as well as um, uh, Libya comparatively to Egypt and Tunisia, where you have found a little bit of stability today in Yemen and, Syria, and, Yemen and uh, Libya? They're basically in a state of civil war. They happen since there's been a little bit of stability for a short period of time, you could say, after the uh, revolutions and the toppling of the government. But then um, they are too of the uh, Syria does grab all the headlines, unfortunately, because I mean, some of the atrocities have been committed there. But we see similar stuff taking place in Libya and Yemen today with a you know, civil wars taking place.
0: I think we're scheduled to talk about Libya or sorry Syria next week or next yeah, episode. So.
2: Yeah, and I, I think you're right too. I mean there's a lot of talk about serious, but you know, we're seeing a lot happening in Libya. I mean, we just there was an Al Qaeda leader killed, was it yesterday or today? Um and continuing clashes in Libya that are ongoing. So it does it's kinda of sad that it does take a backseat, if you will, to our coverage in the Middle East.
1: Yes, it does. You've you've had a power vacuum in Yemen and in Libya. Uh what happens is um Bad actors already storm it, storm in and take take advantage of the vacuum. And there's a lot of players on the battlefield. It's hard to distinguish who's fighting with who. At sometimes.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, so we'll come back and deal with Syria next time. But for now, let's uh, let's focus on some of these underrepresented. I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah. The, the the ones that we have haven't heard so much about. So let's let's start with uh, Yemen. What what's happening there that is different from what we've heard about other places?
1: What is happening here is the protests you really see with Yemen, and it starts off with university and students protesting, but it quickly turns into a tribal, The, the movement gets hijacked by students who are calling for certain reforms and things that need to be done with the government. The government is already fighting an insurgency against, um, started in 2004, you have a secessionist movement taking place, Uh, you have a weak central state. So one of the unique characteristics of this one is that this movement is really taken over by, um, you really see the tribalism uh, that is in play in uh, countries such as Libya that we'll be looking at also. But in Yemen, it's, it's really important looking at the tribal composition of the Middle East and how that is dictated in politics. Because at the end of the day, when you look at a lot of these, these two, um, it turns out to be a lot of tribal warfare um, between elite tribes and um, that have dominated the political situation. And you have these two autocratic leaders that have led over their countries, um, with both Yemen and Libya. And in Yemen, you're going to have a lot of the same factors you have with Tunisia and Egypt with related to economics. Yemen is really like the perfect toxic stew for an uprising because of all the long-term standing factors that you have in place.
0: Let's start at the beginning. So, what was Yemen like before the uprisings? What were the fact, You know, what were the conditions in Yemen that helped to prompt the protests and all of that? And then we can kind of move forward to the protests and then the, the consequences.
1: Sure, you have long-standing issues. One rooted in the economy. That's number one. Also, it's a state um, that's been created. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember a North and a South Yemen. Okay, Yemen becomes the unification of these two countries where the leader from North Yemen becomes the leader of the entire country. So when you put together his number of years in leadership, you're looking at about 33 years. He starts in 1978 with North Yemen and then becomes the in 1990, they unify, they're still divided. He takes over as president, elected in, but his 38-year rule, As elections go go. In some cases, they're not going to be transparent. Okay, um, it's one of the poorest nations in the region. When you look at the unemployment rates, 40 to 43 uh, percent below the po- poverty line. We um, have a growing gender gap related to equality. Women are only about 29 percent literacy rate. Men are about 69 percent. So that becomes a bit of an issue as well. You have a rebellion taking place in 2004, okay, and it's straining the government. You have another secessionist movement taking place that involves a bunch of individuals that were former military leaders. So Yemen is going to look similar to a Libya, or it's going to look similar to an Egypt where. It has been somewhat of a military... It's been a military rule. It's been a military state. And when um, those individuals um, go retire, they're going to be compensated by the state or expect to be compensated by the state. But that becomes difficult when you have one of the worst economies or poorest economies in the world and that there are no employment opportunities and that people are going and get an education. When they come out, there's nothing available to them. Um, you do have... The marginalization of other tribes where the leader, this Salah, where he basically favors his own tribes and marginalizes others. You also have a very high, and James referenced that al-Qaeda group and probably the most effective um, al-Qaeda group is in Yemen, based in Yemen, or was the most effective. It's coming back. uh, It's an AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And we probably remember them from individuals uh, that they've dispatched, such as the underwear bomber that flew into Detroit on Christmas Day. I'm not sure if you guys remember that. Oh, yes. Yeah, some of the top ideologues, the guy from San Diego um, that was out in San Diego, Anwar al Awaki. Uh, He inspired the Fort Hood shooter, um, Hassan Nadal. So they were very effective. And we were cooperating, and Yemen was seen as kind of, we're going to kind of look the other way because we're also engaged in this war on terror. So that gives Saul a little bit of freedom and a little bit of ability to maneuver, but eventually it's going to catch up to him as people withdraw their support.
2: And Yemen is such... Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's such a a diverse, so many different elements that are underwriting the conflict in the region. I mean, you have religious distinctions and different majority and minority and even people in the majority not happy with the status quo. Then you have the military, you have the political conflict. So it really is a, a cluster of concerns driving multiple conflicts.
1: Yes, it, it absolutely is. And when you look at just the complexity of it, um, when you mix in the, the tribalism and the political machinations that are taking place, the religious component that you referenced, the, the big rebellion that I was talking about in 2004, and now they control the government, is the um, Houthi rebels um, and they're uh, Shia. Okay, and they have been repressed, and they see themselves aligned with Iran. So that starts to draw in other factors, Um, and that's why it's turned into this proxy war that you see taking place between Saudi Arabia. We withdrew our funding for that and their ventures in um, in Yemen, but you look at the government right now, it is a rebel government <laughs> and um, they're receiving arms, the Houthi rebels. They have toppled the government they are receiving arms from Iran uh, right now.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned um that Salah he basically united depending on how you want to f- define united, but he brought North and South Yemen together, what was it, back in nineteen ninety, and then yeah. now we're pushing forward up towards the you know, the years of the directly before and during the Arab Spring and all of that. So what is yeah. so we've see the fract- the country fracturing yeah. And then what does what what I'm assuming this guy tr- is going to try to hold on to power. So w- what happens when, he, when the country starts fracturing?
1: Uh, what he's going to do is he's going to take kind of the dual approach that you see early on in Tunisia that Ben Ali tries and isn't successful with. Um, and that's um, trying to make compromises that on face value, people are going to say, well, is he really going to live up to him? And so he's going to make a number of concessions. But he's also going to get involved with, at first it's not extreme brutality, he doesn't go overhand, but he is going to use a carrot and stick method. Uh, With the activists, they're going to be harassed, they're going to be arrested, they're going to be beaten. What they're going to do, something that Salah, and this shows that he is a political actor, He, he sees what's going on in Egypt, he makes sure that the main square where we saw the uprisings in Egypt take place and where they gained momentum in Tahrir Square, he denies that space. He fills that space with the military and with his own individuals so that they don't have a central meeting ground. But what the the students do is they just go a couple blocks over right by the university and set up in the middle of a crosswalk. And so you see it take place. The concessions, he's going to say, try and address some of the economic concerns. He's going to put pay raises in there, free food, gas for military and security forces, um, salary increases for lowest paid civil servants, reduction of income tax by half, new subsidies, price controls. He's going to put out all, all, all these economic promises that he's not going to be able to deliver on. And he just wants to, as you said, Robert, he wants to control and stay in control. And his, his actions will bear that out. The first little Revolt takes January 15th. I mean, it's just, it's not a revolt. It's just people gathering in the streets after Ben Ali falls in Tunisia. And, you know, you have several dozen. I mean, we're just talking, then a handful take to the streets in Sana'a, celebrating and also uh, sending a message to, to Salah. Um And then the Re- Mubarak resignation brings more people out into the streets. So, um, and the in- initial government response was to deny the, that public space. Okay, so you can see that it's kind of gaining momentum. February 25th, he kind of crosses the line. Someone finally dies, and this is going to... Infl- inflame the situations. Seventeen-year-old uh, outside of the capital, so in Aden, which is the port city. If you remember, the USS Cole was um, hit by Al Qaeda there back before 9/11. A uh, student, seventeen-year-old student, shot dead in on uh, February 25th, and then things start to really escalate. Uh, where. You have more demonstrators taking place in different parts of the country. And March 18th marks really kind of the big day where you have a dramatic escalation of violence. This is where you see where Salah really kind of goes over the threshold, and he's going to do things that Mubarak and um, Ben Ali didn't do, and he's just going to start a dramatic escalation of the violence. Um, that's going to first year you, what you're going to do. And, and what he's going to do is um, target individuals coming out of Friday prayers on March 18th, coming out of the mosque, a lot of them protesters. They're going back to the area where they're protesting around the university. And on the rooftops, there are uh, shooters from the um, Yemen government on the orders of Salah. And um, a bunch of protesters are killed. And at this point, he starts to lose, things spiral well out of control for him. He starts to lose tribal support. You have the key tribe, he's, he's a subset of this much larger tribal faction. They turn their back on him. They withdraw all support from him. This is going to hurt him. Uh, you have a number of individuals from the military they are going to defect based on this. So he's losing his tribal support that had been the backbone as well as the military. He's losing everything around him. By May, that tribe that I mentioned that he's a subset of, um, they're really, if you look at it, in the tri- they're above him. Um, he's just part of this larger tribal federation. Because they pull out and withdraw their support, he assaults their compound in Sana, the capital. And there's about, in about a week's time, uh, the fighting's just raging on. It kills about 100 people. So then you have those other uprisings that have been going on since... 2004, uh, with the Houthis, that Shia repressed minority. You have another group that I mentioned, um, the the retired soldiers. They're going to primarily come from one tribe in one region, and they're going to start to all of a sudden work together. So all these factors that wouldn't have normally united, they're going to unite together against a common foe, and everybody's rising up against Salah. By June, someone fires, you know, the, the details are pretty sketchy, but a uh, bomb goes off in, um, at his presidential palace, and he's severely wounded. And the, the reports are, no one really knows what happened, what's going on with him. There's reports he's being treated in Saudi Arabia, which he is. But uh, people didn't know if he was what, what was going to happen at that point. It seemed like he was completely out of the picture, and the country was going to start moving. And it looked like there might be some movement towards some type of reconciliation here in, with Salah out of the picture. Um, But then he returns in September he's like a cockroach (laughs) The guy just won't go away Uh, (laughs) He returns in September Says he's going to take over Control Pressure all around him And by November 23rd You finally have the The Saudi government, the Gulf Cooperation Committee or the GCC, they're putting pressure on Salah saying, listen, you've got this civil war taking place. It needs to be resolved here. And the the letter of the deal is basically you're going to resign. You're going to leave office. Um, What we won't do is we won't prosecute you. OK, you, your children, um, your son, who's going to take over from you, he's not taking over anymore. Okay, you're done. You sign this. You finish out your term, all your executive powers are taken away. They're all going to be transferred to your vice president. And you're also going to have this other group where he, he's marginalized. And that's pretty f-
0: much the deal you want if you're a, you know, a nut job dictator and you're about yeah. to get booted out of office by an angry mob with pitchforks. That's a pretty good deal, actually, <laughs> to be able it's to like, escape without prosecution or getting, you know, cut <laughs> off.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful deal for him. But guess what? Does he want does he does he take it? No. Um, oh. Well, he signs. Spoiler. <laughs> it. Yeah, he signs it, but we're gonna see that. As I said, he's a cockroach. He keeps. <laughs> he can't get rid of the guy. He comes back again um, in another manifestation, working with his rivals. He's gonna eventually work with the Houthis. Uh, and try and secure some type of position in their government. So, um, yeah, but I won't play this out. But if you look at it, this is a student uprising that was hijacked by multiple groups. The soldiers I mentioned, it's the Harak movement, okay, you have the Houthis join the rebellions, and then you have a bunch of tribal elites and religious groups and all these individuals, that makes it so difficult. And you wonder if they're actually going to be able to power share once they get into government together. Because uh, what they're united for is they're all united against Saleh, and that's good for toppling it. But what are you going to do after that? How is your country going to be governed? And those are major issues that Yemen is dealing with today.
0: Which basically sets the stage for Yemen being in a perpetual state of civil war, at least for the yeah. in recent years yeah. anyway.
1: And it really threatens if you look at it now from a geopolitical standpoint and from a geo from a world economic standpoint, um, you already have the Strait of Hormuz on one side that is, can be threatened. Um, and has been by uh, Iran to close it down to um, use a, as a toolkit of diplomacy to, you know, drive up oil prices. It's never actually happened, but there's saber rattling that takes place. And what that does is it cuts off one of your access points to the Arabian Sea and that world oil supply. Now, with Yemen, you go to the other side and you have, instead of the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz, you have the Red Sea and what is known as the Bab el mendeb Strait, which is an even more narrow gap. And that, the concern is that falls under Houthi control, then Iran has the ability to shut down, basically the Suez Canal becomes useless. And you could imagine what the uh, economic um, ramifications would be with something like that. It's an important region, geopolitically, is to make sure that you have safe, safe passage of shipping. Um, so that's what I think has a lot of people worried. And also, that vacuum that's created, you know, what's going to grow in that vacuum? And what you see is ISIS relocating there. You see Al- Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula reconstituting itself and becoming really strong once again, where they're controlling territory, controlling terrain, um, controlling ground outside the central government. You don't have a central government. You have a rebel m- militia. They've Declared a rebel uh, rebel council and the government's controlled nominally by the Houthis because they're sitting in the seat of power. But does that really mean they have control? No. That's why Saudi Arabia's been, you know, involved there, and we've um, supported that as well. Um, Saudi Arabia's intervention in Yemen. So yeah, it's a perpetual state of civil war, and it's a you know, it's got so many obstacles um, to begin with. You don't deal with um, Libya was probably left in a better state, a much better state.
0: Yeah, and so yeah, looking at the map, Yemen's a fairly small little chunk of the map, but there are some obvious importances there, like you said, shipping lanes, and also as a base for terrorists and all of that. But you did mention that it's there's some similarities and some differences from Libya. So let's let's talk a little about Libya. So what what's their story?
1: Well, everybody. Well, I won't say everybody, but if you're around my age. You know who Muammar Gaddafi is <laughs> yeah, um. I remember, yeah, I'm um, around your age Everybody, I mean, there's been Saturday Night Live skits about him I remember um, David Letterman's top ten uh, names for Muammar Gaddafi You know, like Gaddafi Duck And uh, you had a guy ruling a country from 1969 and He's a colonel, takes a military role, um, seizes power in a coup when um, the individual is out of the country, who is ruling the country, and he rules the country for 42 years, so he's a, another military individual. But what he does sit on that Saleh doesn't sit on, that Mubarak doesn't didn't sit on, that Ben Ali didn't sit on, is he does have natural resources in the form of sweet crude oil. That's why not to fast forward, but you see the European some um, Place an importance on um, on the Libyan um, not just um, oil but natural gas reserves as well. So he's sitting on some pretty good land, and he has been doing so since 1969. You have pretty weak state institutions. Um, it is a country that is very vast. We don't realize how big it actually is. Um, it was really kind of cobbled together. You have three different distinct regions that are cobbled together. In the area around uh, Tripoli, you know, Tripolitania. You have Saranaika province where people may be familiar with the the city Benghazi, or if you're a military historian, you may know Tobruk. um, It's over in that area so it's um off to the east he does have control of a very large country and it does take money to with his type of government that he's in it's it's more of a socialist type government that he's trying to recreate he's looking to an individual like nasser that comes out into egypt of being this key figure to um, revitalize the arab world even though it's Muammar Gaddafi. So, he, you know, he comes up with this grand design. He comes up with something called the Little Green Book. And it's almost it has reflections of, like, the Little Red Book with Mao and the Cultural Revolution. So he creates a state that's almost like this cult of personality. There's all sorts of quirkiness about it. Uh, so you have, you can imagine, the corruption. You have the autocratic regime there. You do have the youth and the education, um, but, you know, they're getting jobs for the most part. The one big thing that you see with Libya that's different than anything else, it really takes a single, singular course where there's really no other country in the region that saw the state apparatus completely split and then a rebel leadership emerged that successfully laid claim to the state. Okay, And that's the one thing that really is going to set it aside in, in this conflict. You're also going to see European intervention taking place which sets it aside, which makes it a distinct outlier uh, from from the other, uh, from, from Yemen. So he's got high literacy rates, both sexes, high life expectancy, low infant mortality. I mean, these are the type of things that we look to when we're looking at the health of nations, you know, of the population. You do have relatively wide income distribution, but it's being stressed. I talked about the tribalism and the importance of it and how it becomes dominated in Yemen. Uh, with Libya, it's even more complex. Uh, what you have are basically 2,000 different tribes. And 50 of the largest tribes are going to dominate society politically. And this has been the case for the longest time, okay, for, for centuries. They're going to dominate their own little area. Um, and some of these tribes become large. And Gaddafis and from one of these tribes outside Sirte, and he's going to um, be able to cobble together this tribalism to create a state that has some economic backbone that is a where you do have a a, a middle class which you don't see in Yemen, but we saw with Egypt and Tunisia. You have a smaller population than compared to Egypt, so um, that's going to make it a little easier to support those state services. You're going to have the population feel as though they're enfranchised economically, which is a little different than what we've seen. But you're going to see that they still feel as though they're socially and politically marginalized. All right. And that's going to be a big driver for this is that you may be able to take care of some of our economic concerns. But at the end of the day, we have no say in the government being run by a dictator.
0: And is this I mean, Qaddafi was there for a long time, but by all accounts, he was not a very stable guy. Right. I mean, he was he did the bombing. What was it? The Pan Am 103 bombing. So he was not the The country might have been relatively healthy, but the guy at the top wasn't necessarily a stable guy. That's oh the... no, no, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. I, you know, I, believe me, I'm not going to be an apologist for. Oh no, guy. I'm not, I'm not yeah. expecting
0: you to. But yeah, I just...
1: no, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you mentioned that the Pan Am 103 Lockerbie bombing over Scotland. Eventually, a, a Libyan going to be sentenced to that, and the finger's going to be pointed back to Libya. Uh, we do have a conflict with them, oh. where you know he's. Putting death threats on everybody you know. Yeah, he, he, he was You know, when, he, when you look at Sponsors of terror And this is the weird thing with Gaddafi Is that, yeah, my gosh During the 70s, during the 80s When you talk about these notorious individuals Like Carlos the Jackal and Abu Nadal These freelance terrorists That are going around, he's financing them He's financing terrorism all over the place And as some of his agents Involved with certain stuff
2: Well, even the IRA very <laughs>
1: but he does. We do have him in what you would say somewhat of a box. Where internationally, he, we don't start to view him as a threat because we seize a shipment coming from Pakistan of, and we catch him red-handed. Um, he's trying to create a nuclear weapon. Okay, <laughs> he's got the materials coming from Pakistan through this AQ Khan network, and uh, we catch him. He eventually agrees to inspections um shuts things down it looks like i mean i'm not going to make him sound like a rational actor because he really isn't but it does look like temporarily we have him in a box uh where he's not gonna threaten comedy outside of libya's borders but what's going on inside becomes repugnant
0: so we've got this government that on the outside Kind of looks healthy, kind of looks contained, but like you mentioned, we've got 50 powerful tribes out of 2,000 total tribes, kind of jostling for power. I imagine. And So is that kind of contributing to just he's man? He's able to keep any disagreements under wraps, just because he's the strong man, and then everything kind of falls apart in 2011, or what? What happens in? Where, where does he, this fit in the Arab scheme, Arab Spring scheme of things?
1: You have the what you do have is you have the the demonstration effect that takes place and you do have areas there is this east-west rivalry that's um you do people see people in the other regions that fall it goes beyond tribes and then it starts to become entire regions that are opposed to his rule. That feel as though he's been disenfranchised. And you know what? He does have a strong military, but it's been weakened over time. Uh, when he was erratic, well, you don't remember, but he, you know he launched wars with Chad to the south of him. Um, so he had a fairly large conventional military, and he was able to cobble together and make sure that because he had that money and that income coming in, that he was able to stay on one side of the balance beam, basically, and. You know, make sure that his military is taken care of, that there's enough civil services, and that if there is any type of problems, he can, it's a fear state. He's created a fear state with an irrational actor. It's almost like having Stalin at the top. You don't know what the, what's going to happen next, so. And that keeps the country in line and it creates a fierce state and a fierce society and people are eventually going to rebel against that. I mean, when you're in that type of situation for 42 years, people aren't going to be happy. There's going to be a large segment of the population.
0: And so was it the protests happening in other countries that sparked protests within Libya or was Libya the trendsetter? Remember, and we're talking about it relatively late compared to other countries. So I'm guessing it started somewhere else. But uh, was it an yeah. outside influence?
1: This is where he is erratic, okay, inside the country now. February 15th, you have a small group of protesters in Benghazi, one of these eastern cities that feel really marginalized. And what they're doing is they're, they're just, one day they're protesting on February 15th, and it's, you know, if you look at other what's happening in other countries at this time, you can't say that there's a certain causation in the demonstration effect. Because there is. It would be ridiculous to deny it but these people are protesting something they want a re- redress of something that they saw was a, a transgression against them back in the ni- 1996 okay and it's a tiny small protest but people also latch on to this and they hear about this that oh my gosh there's a city over here benghazi one of the important port cities in the sarnika province sarnika and um they're revolting there against this guy who's been in power and then it's going to start what you're going to see is it's going to start popping up all over the place where all of a sudden he feels totally pinned in Egypt's fallen okay and you have a lot of weapons coming in if you look at geographically speaking Eastern Libya borders Egypt and you have all sorts of groups coming in and flooding into the situation here Um, you have arms materials Um, flooding in from Egypt to try and precipitate some type of revolution. And this is one thing that we'll see where Libya really differs, is that we had peaceful protests initially in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Yemen. Uh, What we see in uh, Libya is the protesters aren't peaceful. They're going to take up arms, and they're going to press it, and they're going to look at what's going on in the region, and they think they can win. And it's going to pick up momentum quickly. You know, there's all sorts of reports that came out um, about some atrocities committed by Qaddafi, but it was really difficult to verify a lot of them. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, they were able to pick up and and catalog some really mass atrocities committed by the um, different rebel groups that end up trying to, and they're once again, they're going to be united to re- remove Muammar Gaddafi. What happens afterwards, they're going to be united in one fact, and that's to, and they're going to do it through arms, not through um, peaceful means, uh, or initially start with trying a peaceful uh, course, but maybe they just know his track record and say that's not an option.
0: So we've got violent protests breaking out. Gaddafi... Feeling pinned. I mean, the protests themselves are kind of an outsized response to what you said was kind of a local concern that suddenly blew up nationwide. And now, now we've got guns coming in, and so now there's this protest, but it's an armed protest in opposite, in contrast to those other countries. Qaddafi's probably going to have a pretty harsh response, which probably explains why Qaddafi did not get the good deal <laughs> that uh, yes. Saleh got in Yemen uh, yeah. when it came time when the writing was on the wall that Qaddafi going to lose control of the country. He doesn't get the nice deal. <laughs> I
1: agree. And if he, he, Just looking at it from a topical view, if you know a little bit about Libya and Qaddafi, in, in you would say, okay, out of the Arab Spring, if the West was going to get involved in some place, this would be the the guy you, you get involved with in, in supporting the people, because um, he's just of his track record. And, yeah, he's just an easy... He gets pinned by the rebels. and um, It quickly escalates. I mentioned that small group, February 15th. A month later, March 17th, you have the UN Security Council already putting in a no-fly zone. So that's going to ground his Air Force. Then he loses control of the skies. And then also on March 19th, you have NATO air operations. So then it's just a relentless bombing campaign where he's getting hit from the air, and then he's getting hit from the ground on all sides. The West is controlling the air and on the ground. They're definitely lending support to all the rebels, as well as from other uh, Middle Eastern countries. No one likes Gaddafi. Qaddafi okay, um, by this point, and um, people are just happy to get rid of him. <laughs> I mean, it's
2: given his track record, it's not surprising, But and not to be an apologist for Qaddafi at all, but didn't he do some interesting things that actually you wouldn't expect from a man of, <laughs> of uh, his cruelty? Well, like, wasn't housing like a universal right, and there was free electricity oh, and things
1: like that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he... That's why I, I talked about the natural resources, but, you know, he was... I hate to call him an entrepreneur, but he put together this huge telecommunications network that was going to service in all of Africa to kind of take it out of European control. As far as women's rights, female rights, um, you have a very, very educated populace. Um, local it's such parties. an odd juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. That's why I say, gosh, he's not a rational actor. <laughs> so, I, mean, I mean, he universal education universal health care I mean he does have the does have all the backbone you know the, the important things that Tunisia is lacking or Egypt that he was able to um, kind of harness and um, so he did it you, you, you make a good point James that he did some really things that helped his his rule you know when he started to lose grip and people would look at these things and say well you know what devil that we know is better than double we don't know um, let's keep this guy in place.
0: Well, it's kind of like the Nixon effect, you know. Looking back forty years after Watergate, it's easy for us to say that, well, you know, yeah, he did that, but he also did the EPA. He did yeah. some good stuff. So, not, you know, I don't necessarily want to equate Nixon <laughs> with Gaddafi, but you know, as a local example, I think that. I mean, even history's worst dictators, there are some good things that they do. So oh, I mean, they course. they have to do some things to get the you know the 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 support that keeps them in power. They have yeah. to they have so they do have to and so in this case, Gaddafi is a nut job, but yeah. <laughs> in order to keep the people in line, um, and, and who knows, I mean, you, you mentioned before that he had his little green book, which is kind of, uh, I don't know, an offshoot of Mao's little red book or something, so maybe there are some socialism influences there where you need to, you know, level the masses and everybody has the same opportunities and all of that, yeah. so th- there could be an ide- ideological component to it too, but or it could just be self preservation that you have to keep the people happy.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it's all preservation. I mean, you, people could say the same thing, you know, about Hitler, you know, during five-year period, you know, you see the, basically the largest economic expansion in history, and people are going to say, well, you know what, we'll, we'll tolerate some of these other liberties. Um, that's yeah, the important. last thing I wanted this
2: to do is turn into an a, an apologist podcast for dictators, so I apologize <laughs> yeah. for that myself. <laughs> well, no, I,
1: you know what, James, James, when I was going over this, I'm like, gosh, you know what, I, I hate to bring these things up, but you know, do I address something <laughs> you have to. I mean as a historian you have to look at these are things that are in place and there is if you look at it in that case, you know, maybe there is hope for Libya. And they do have that foundation that you don't have in some of these other states such as Yemen. But it's
2: important, right, especially as historians and looking at what happened in history. I mean, we always try to tie things together and create heroes and villains. But this is something that comes up again and again when you're talking to students of American history or even the American population in general. I mean, that belief that America can do no wrong. And if you start to focus on the things that were questionable or that they might have done wrong, or that I did you wrong that you're somehow tarnishing the reputation rather than creating a nuanced understanding of what our history is and what we've done and where we can go and what we can learn and it's I, it's the same thing with people like Qaddafi I mean there's so much bad that he's done but there are nuances within that too that don't make up for the terrible things that he did but really make you stop to think about what motivated this person and what was going on in the country at the time
1: yes he's he, he's killed on October 20th and it happens quickly and he's eventually pinned down to his home. As places fall, he goes back to his hometown and um, he's supposedly injured by one of the bombing runs. Um, He holds out there for like uh, I don't know how many days, but he eventually retreats back there and then he's dragged out of a tunnel and hanged and that's the end of him. And I really have to wonder that had Europeans not gotten involved would you have the situation you have there right now? Actually the U.S. is involved as well. Um, You know, it was a NATO bombing campaign. If that was not on the table, would he have maintained power? Kind of looking at Syria as the juxtaposition of this, Um, we don't get involved there, and Assad does get in power, and then he does get bombing help from the Russians.
0: So basically in Libya, NATO and the U.S. and the U.N., basically we picked a side that we wanted to... Join with the anti qaddafi coalition of various yeah. tribes and all of that. Then once Gaddafi's yeah. out of the way, I suppose at that point you have kind of the old story where you you had a coalition that took him out, and then once it's over, the coalition then falls apart and goes that's to war part. against each other. Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay. You tell Robert. <laughs> yeah, that's that that's same that's old
0: weird. sad story.
1: It really is, and that you know, we'll in the final episode we'll kind of recap where Libya is today. But you know, that it has become one of the fall backgrounds in the chaos of everything. It's been you still are going to have a very strong Al Qaeda presence there, with two groups. There's Ansar al Sharia, again that's going to be in the eastern Sarnaika province, and then you're going to have AQIM, which is Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, um, that constitutes a group that looks over Western Libya and um, Algeria, and it's where also ISIS is going to try and reconstitute itself, and then you have all these different um, tribal factions trying to fight it out as well. So we'll get to talk more about that in the final episode. It's really kind of this, in some ways it's going to mirror Yemen, in some ways it's going to look like Syria, what's going on there.
0: Well, I think we will uh, come back and talk about Syria next time, but for now, I think we can probably wrap up uh, Yemen and Libya. We, Like you said, we will come back in our last episode of this little mini-series on the Arab Spring to tie all these strings together. But thank you for coming and talking to us about Yemen and Libya, and uh, we will see you both, hopefully. I will see you both, hopefully, again soon to talk about uh,
1: Syria. Yes,
2: thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It will be a pleasure to talk about Syria, but again, just based on our last conversation, is it really a pleasure?
2: Well, um, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a pleasure, the conversation itself, maybe not the content.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And thank you all for joining us today. Come back again next time where we're going to talk about how the Arab Spring played out in Syria. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments on this podcast, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. Until next time, take care. In our last episode, we discussed how the Arab Spring played out. Damn it.